Hello. Hi, welcome to episode five of season six. Of Relay Essay, which is a podcast that features a connected conversation about student affairs in Canada. So the whole point is that we interview folks who are doing interesting work on college and university campuses across Canada. And at the end of the interview, we always invite them to suggest names of folks we should interview next. So we're kind of creating this connected conversation, this relay where people are passing the baton along mm -hmm. from conversation to conversation. Uh, this episode uh, helps me complete my relay. Yeah, when we Actually, interviewed you a few seasons ago, yeah. you suggested Chantelle Joy, which you interviewed her last yeah. season, I think. And then... Sean Kinsella. Sean Kinsella. It was really a great time. I should really bug Sean more outside of like interviewing him for things because <laughs> there's just tons of stuff that he could talk about, which is great to listen. Well, let's not waste any more time. Okay. Let's get right to it. I will declare that I'm not the type to have many years. It's worth all the shares. The number one podcast is student affairs. Want to hear what they have to say, along with all the guests that have been on the way. Without further delay, it's me, they, yes, hey. So, please introduce yourself. Okay, uh, I think I will maybe do that in one of the languages that I speak, because that seems like fun. Uh, so, Tanse. Uh, so I'm Sean Kinsella. Uh, I um, come from people who are from Ireland, uh, as well as uh, Treaty 6 territories, what is now Treaty 6 territories, as well as James Bay area originally. Um, and I work, I've worked in student affairs for the last, well, I don't know, say 10, 11 years. Um, and do a lot of work around uh, indigenization and indigenous inclusion within a higher education context. Uh, I also teach um, part-time uh, in, in uh, the Indigenous Studies Stackable Credential at Centennial College. Uh, and then just essentially go and uh, do learning and speaking and whatever when asked to go and do those things at places. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit about me. Uh, my mom is... Um, is uh, Irish and Cree, um, and um, like her father's people uh, were Irish, Scottish, and James Bay Cree. Mother's people are from Treaty Six, uh, now around, they're in Saskatchewan now, but ranged across most of the what's now called the prairies. Um, and uh, and uh, my dad's people are um, sort of Irish on all sides, uh, who came over during the famine times, ended up in Montreal uh, for a while. Uh, and then my dad um, and mom both kind of met in Toronto here, which is where I was born, Phil. Oh, lovely. So how did you get all caught up in the student affairs game? Like, what was their entry point and yeah. how did it all begin for you? Uh, I was a Don. So um, I was originally an undergraduate student at Waterloo. Uh, and, um, and I think it was actually, like, funnily enough... Um, uh, more like an ex-partner who was interested in it. And I was like, yeah, that seems like an interesting thing to, to kind of do and explore. Um, and, uh, and well, I don't know if I want to say that. Maybe this is a part to edit out. Or cut out. Um, but okay. it, the sort of funny piece was um, that, uh, uh, that they tried to be a Don and then ended up on the wait list. And then I was a Don <laughs> first try. And I was a Don actually with, uh, with um, uh, Leanne Holland-Brown, who just passed away. 
Uh, so she was my coordinator for, for my first year. Um, and I was in the uh, townhouses at, uh, at Waterloo, uh, which was an interesting um, experience then because <clears throat> versus other dons, which is often consistently true for townhouse dons across everywhere where you kind of end up living with three other people in a house yeah. and other dons are in these like swanky suites. So that was our experience too. Yeah. Um, but uh, that, uh, she was my first coordinator and... Um, and then her and uh, uh, someone who I think is now in real estate, Scott Mills. Um, and I remember talking to him about doing this as a job. So I was kind of like, what you do seems really cool. And particularly... Oh, you got it then. Oh, uh-huh. yeah. Oh, I didn't. I, okay, that's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> and part of it was, um, I think I wasn't a Don until my fourth year. So I think where that gave me an advantage is I was in that kind of stage of like, what do I do next? And I remember um, really like in a very... Um, thing I've been thinking about the last the last few weeks especially is um, a piece around um, the fact that uh, Leanne or LHB um, as we kind of called her then um, uh, was doing the role with a lot of care and a lot of compassion uh, and I think uh, in a way that I could see myself also doing it so I think I was very very fortunate to have a role model um, someone who obviously the impact of which has been very clearly demonstrated over the last while and, and made a big impact in the field of student affairs in general, particularly Laurier. Um, and it's kind of funny because um, she was only at Waterloo, I think, for that year. Um, and I was just very fortunate to get to work with mm-hmm. her during that time. And uh, and it was really, I think, coming to her and kind of saying to her and then Scott, what does it look like to do this? Like, if I wanted to do this as a job, how would I how'd go about doing that? What skills do I have? And, and I think it was kind of their encouragement to to sort of keep doing that. Interestingly enough for me, um, from an access point, I was also working um, in something completely unrelated to housing at that time, part-time. So I was someone who through my undergrad worked and I was working as a heating and cooling dispatcher. Really? Um, Yeah. And it was an after hours and evenings dispatcher. I was doing probably about, I don't know, between 29 and 35 hours given the week. Um, in addition to going to school, yeah. um, which was not, which as an academic transition person now, I'm like, don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> it's a terrible idea. Um, but at the time that was what I, I had all the energy in the world. Right. Barely, I mean, that right? was, yeah, <laughs> just barely. And I look back now and I'm like, how did I, and then I think I'm like, how did I do that? And I'm like, oh, right. I, I now have more than one job and have run like indigenous agencies and stuff. So like, I don't know that that energy has gone anywhere. It's yeah. just been like redirected in different places. Um, but I remember sort of being a dispatcher and liking it in certain ways, but I think really, it was an interesting experience to already be in the work world. Um, and I mean, you know, because f- folks there, like the other folks I was working with, um, this was their full-time gig. Like they weren't, you know, some of the folks who worked in the call center I worked in were students, but for the most part, this was like what people did for a living. So it was a very interesting balance, I think, between being a student and, and going to school and like doing those kinds of things and also like having an actual sort of like place where you're sort of seeing that this is something that folks are doing as a career. And so um, for a while I was doing that. And then when I went to um, to Peterborough um, with the next partner um, to who was working in housing there, um, there just happened to be a gig open at, at Fleming uh, in college in Peterborough uh, for a residence coordinator. And the really sort of funny and, and serendipitous story is that um, uh, Leanne had left uh, – had left Waterloo and was working at Laurier and was, I think, working on sort of like creating um, some leadership programming in colleges. And so she had been doing a site tour of a whole bunch of different colleges. And the person who hired me just happened to meet her and was so impressed by her 
that when um, that when it came time that she was my reference and he called her, he was like, oh, I think this is someone that we need to like have on our team wow. based on her referral. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I'm very grateful, um, like really like, uh, and I was reflecting on this a lot, um, that, that in a lot of ways, like obviously like I, I brought skills and had very different skills than a lot of, I think folks who maybe just go right into housing or student affairs because I had been working elsewhere. And, mm-hmm. and, and it was kind of funny cause I had a bit of a crossroads because as I was finishing up that time, um, I had been approached to be like an after hours lead and I probably, if I had wanted to, could have got a full-time gig doing that dispatching work. And it was like very different because from student affairs where like student affairs is very, it's the same kind of like crisis work. Cause yeah. I, I was dealing with, um, all of the folks that I was dealing with were essentially folks who had like no heat or no, or no cooling. And so like elderly folks, so getting yelled at a lot, sometimes that happens to student affairs, customer service yeah. and like crisis situations. <laughs> so it's not dissimilar. Um, skills. it was, and it was nice. I mean, in some ways, like what I did like about it was you really got to like leave the work at, at, at at work and come home and do that because like it was shift work so as soon as your shift was over someone else was taking over the boards yes. for overnight and then you didn't have to worry about it which is obviously very different than student affairs where like we we often have to carry our work sort yeah. of on our back with us um, wherever we go um, but it was good it was good sort of setup for that so um, so then I started in in student housing and then um, I ended up maybe in 2007 I think uh, coming to UTM for a conference um, and I remember even at that time, which is kind of a funny thing to look back on, I remember walking around the, comp- the campus and I remember seeing people who were working here and I was like, I think that I want to work at UTM one day. Really? And then, <clears throat> and then it was eventually, um, I was on the board of directors for ACUA, which is the Ontario Association of College and University Housing Officers, um, a couple of years and uh, got to know uh, Dale Mullings, who's the assistant uh, dean here mm-hmm. now. Uh, he was the director of housing at, the, at that time. And so... Um, he, uh, he, uh, I had finished, um, my time at Fleming and was taking a bit of a break between, um, starting something else. Uh, and I remember he called me about three days before training and was like, um, more or less like, do you want to come in for a conversation? Um, to kind of see, cause we have a vacancy and it's like, it's kind of urgent. And I was like, yeah, yeah all right. So I'll, I'll drive down from Peterborough and like do a, do a, do have a conversation. I didn't know I was walking into an interview. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> now, fortunately, I, like, dressed up, and I was like, whatever, so yeah. that's fine. So I'd, like, partially prepared, but I wasn't fully prepared, and it was an interview, so I interviewed, and then they kind of sent me downstairs for a little bit, and then sent me on a tour, and then brought me back up, and we're like, so when can you start? <laughs> and I was like, tomorrow. I wow. can start tomorrow. And they're like, really? I'm like, yeah. So I went back to Peterborough, packed up my car enough to come here, and then basically started two days before training and went right into training. Uh, and that was nine years ago. <laughs> Wow. So, so I've been here for the last nine years ever since, uh, and I'm now um, currently the only person who's uh, still in the department because uh, everyone else has uh, had has cycled through in the time that I've been here. So, wow. And I've done start. and I've done two different roles here. So I've done the um, I was a community development coordinator when I started, um, which is overseeing more like a residence area, and then I've been in the academic transition role for about five or six years. Okay. Um, so yeah, so it's hard. I, I often. Uh, have one of those things where I like sometimes forget how long I've been sort of in yeah. in the field, but I guess it's been actually more like twelve years now. Um, so is it a good forgetting? Yeah, like I think it's a little bit of where has that time gone kind of yeah. situation where I'm just like, wow, that's I. 
And I often, um, my colleague who works in, in the office with me here, Jenna, uh, sometimes has to remind me because um, she was um, my program assistant uh, yeah. years ago. Yeah. So, um, so like, knows how long I've been here and will remind me. Uh, I think this year I was like, yeah, I've, I've been in the this sort of, like, uh, academic transition role for, like, three years. She's like, it's been, like, five or six years. Three I'm like, what? Because, <laughs> again, I just, like, the time just kind of goes. So, yeah, so I think it, it is a good thing. I think... Um, yeah, I think it's good when you can kind of forget. And I think with, with our field and with academia too sometimes, I think the, the years kind of blur uh, a little yeah. bit. I always joke that a day is like one big year. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then sometimes a year feels like a day and yeah. you're just like, what, like, especially I find uh, second semester, you're, you're just like, I can't believe it's midway through May yeah, already. Either. Like, I don't know what happened to May. Like, it feels like we were just doing checkouts and that was like yeah. almost two weeks ago and you're just like, oh, okay, <laughs> cool. How do you... Or any advice, or I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but any advice, I find when I talk with other people, I'll be like, thanks for admitting this out loud. I always get like a three-year itch in a role. Like, I'm like, yeah. like, okay, I think the first year I'm like a newbie, second year, kind of figure it out, third year I'm like, I feel like a little bit of an itch. Like, how do you navigate those moments of... I think <clears throat> what I've learned about myself is I think... Um, that's probably true of me. I think my first gig, I probably did about three years uh, as a res life coordinator. Then I did probably about three or four years as a CDC. And then this year, this time it's been about double that. But about three years ago, I started teaching. So I think what I probably do is I probably take on extra things um, to try and enhance what I'm already doing. Okay. Um, and it's like an interesting thing because I think um, for me, like there's pieces around... Um, I think particularly being one of like uh, on this particular campus, and I think on on lots of uh, campuses, um, there isn't that many Indigenous folks. So there's also like a pretty big demand on time around um, institutional stuff. Uh, I know of late here, we've had some like really exceptional Indigenous faculty get hired recently, mm -hmm. um, and so uh, um, when they arrived, they were kind of like, you know, who's been doing this work on this campus for? for a while and for me it's been almost nine years so okay. I've gotten brought into some of those consultation pieces so I think for me uh I always keep myself busy so I don't really get bored and I try not to replicate things too much so I think um my portfolios have changed enough um I think uh the work that we do with academic transition we're always like trying to tweak it and that kind of stuff um I think what I learned um from my time uh, for a couple of years two or three years I was also running a friendship center while I was doing my master's and working full-time, so I also, like, wow. don't have a good sense of balance, I don't think. Um, but I, I was thinking about, um, like, within that, what I've recognized for myself is that I'm a pretty good person. Um, I'm not a good leader for stability. So, like, I think for some folks, there's folks who are really good at being leaders during times of stability and, like, yeah. status quo stuff. That's not me as a human. Okay. Um, I like change. I like things to be ever-altering. Doesn't mean I don't like routine and pattern, but I think... Um, but I think I, I sort of like things to evolve and change and to be able to take new approaches to things often. Uh, and so I think because the, the role that I am in now, um, is very much, um, one that it's kind of on its own and it's independent. So, um, so that really appeals to me. And I often joke, um, that I think it's a, it's the, uh, in addition to sort of the, the, the sort of Cree side, I think it's very much the sort of Irish and like a tennis yeah. block, but like. <laughs> Because um, one of the what what that word actually describes in the language in Cree 
is it's talking about um, the people who own themselves, which is what um, uh, Métis people were called. Because um, there was this idea that you didn't want to be anyone's under th- under anyone's thumb. Yes. And so for me, there is like a bit of an ethic, and it is, again, I think reflected in the Irish independence piece around like um, where I like to be able to do the work that I do. Um, I like to be independent in the work that I'm doing. Um, while also being part of a community and a bigger, like, responsible to a team and things like that. So um, I think why I've been in the role that I've been in as as long as I have, I think, is because I I get that sense of, like, independence. It's my own program that I get to kind of work on and develop. Um, We can tweak it every year. Um, And it is also, like, in conjunction with uh, the departments that um, do the same kind of work on the campus side. So it's also building relationships and partnerships. And so I think it's... um, it's kind of a, it's an interesting position because there isn't very many like it uh, in Canada, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I think probably um, there's maybe, I don't know, maybe three, four or five or something like that across across the country, I would guess. Because um, there's not that many uh, residential operations that have like an academic component yeah. specific to it. That's true. Um, and particularly in the way that we do it, where it's very much tied into residence life and not separate, like it's um, very much um, runs in parallel with the other programming that we do with, with um our sort of dons and uh, residents, uh, desk folks and things like that. Okay. So, so yeah, I guess, I guess if I can keep things new and I think a lot of it's also just like, um, mentorship. So I, I've been like in a cool mentor for, for a few years. Um, I think, um, <clears throat> um, keeping like helping new indigenous folks get in the field. It, there's a lot of stuff Akua, with Akua right now. Um, that's going on around like uh, they have like an um, uh, ethnicity diversity project that they're working on where they're looking at um, uh, basically the sort of like um, racialized makeup of uh, student housing and coming to conclusions that it's not great (laughs) Uh, and so I think uh, I I know last year and the year before we were kind of contributing to that uh, a colleague of mine who I present with a lot uh, who is indigenous and also works at UFT um, Savannah and, and we talk a lot about um, what it means to be in a field where there's not that many of us uh, that are indigenous in the field. And then also like that there's not that many who are indigenous that are like, for lack of a better term, like out about it. Because um, yeah. I mean, there's probably lots of other folks who are indigenous, but like don't feel... Um, Safe or comfortable. 100%, yeah, identifying. Or or that maybe for them it's, it's not as significant. I think for me it's become probably um, something that feels important to kind of carry um, and sort of push. Um, if only I think for folks who, um, you know, maybe are, are, um, not mixed in the same way that I am or, or maybe not as white coated or things like that. In a lot of ways the the equity stuff is like, I have a lot of privilege that way in addition to the weird straddling of worlds. Right. So I think, um, trying to understand what it means to be like a mixed indigenous person who comes from an urban setting and, and those sorts of pieces and what inroads we can make for folks who maybe don't follow those identities, but like may also need additional support when they come into academia. Um, you know, I was, I'm very lucky cause my dad um, went to post-secondary, which was also unusual for at that time for his family. Um, like I think he was the first in his family, um, to ever go to school, I think. Um, cause we come from like folks who were pretty like, um, like three of my grandparents were in, were World War II vets. And then they sort of came out and like managed to get jobs in, in industry because they had, obviously like been to war and seen combat and, and that sort of thing. And so I would think about that a lot around like, wow. what do we think of like in terms of like emergencies or things? And I'm like, yeah. well, I imagine that whatever they were dealing with was probably less significant than getting shot at. So yeah. it's probably like not a, a bad way to, to, 
to think about what our, you know, um, and with all sort of like, I think, um, uh, with all due respect, I think to the, the sort of fields they were in. So, um, so I think it was an interesting thing to, to grow up. My mom didn't, didn't do post-secondary, um, you know, and, and both of them had worked at Bell for, you know, uh, I think my mom retired, took a pension after 30 something years at Bell. She started as a switchboard operator uh, and worked her way up to be a, like a middle manager. Um, so it was interesting. And then my dad uh, had been to school. He's a computer scientist, like a computer engineer, which is weird. Um, I mean, it's how his brain works. Uh, he has a joke uh, that both my sister and I went to Waterloo and both of us ended up in humanities. Um, and he has, he sort of jokes, he's like, you went to the top, sort of one of yeah. the top computer science and engineering schools in, in the country. Uh, and you both graduate with humanities and we're like, well, what can you do? Yeah. Oh, well. Um, but, um, but I, you know, I think it was a benefit, I think for me at that time to, to have, uh, my dad who sort of got it, my mom who like didn't necessarily understand the post-secondary experience, which is often very true of the research of, of like first generation, yes. uh, students who, um, if, you know, if their parents don't understand the Canadian system, if they've been uh, to school abroad or, um, but my dad also went in Quebec, which is also a different education oh, yeah. system than here too. Oh, yeah. Um, so he went to, uh, to the Concordia. Would he, have, would he have experienced like the CGIP system or? I don't know. Okay. Probably. Um, I don't know. He, he went in the seventies, so I'm not sure if CGIP was, was as much of a thing there. Mm-hmm. It might've been though. Cause I feel like, um, I think my mom probably also did grade 13 as well, because I think that was a thing yeah. here. So it was much more, like, I def- and I did grade 13 as well um, before it, unfortunately, ended, because I feel like that was a good buffer for students I agree. coming as first-year students. I don't think it prepared me academically, but it prepared me mentally. Yeah, I think it gave you an extra year to yeah. kind of sort yourself out. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when I went, um, I did my OACs <clears throat> um, early, so I had, like, taken all my grade 12 courses and then had done three or four OEC courses, um, in my grade 12 year. And then I was like, Oh, I only need to do like three more of these. So I was like, so do I like, what do I do? Um, so I think I ended up taking another, like I I came back for another year, but I I wasn't doing, I don't think a full course load. I think I was doing like just the amount of courses that you needed and then then ended up with like more, lots more OECs than I needed. Cause I was like, well, what else else am I going to do? Cause I wasn't ready to to go to school yet, which I knew, um, you know, I could have gone in January, but I was like, yeah, I'm going to just stick and enter in September. So I think that that buffer year can be really helpful for students and sort of like helping to transition and sort of like all that sort of stuff. And you've, You've noticed like a difference in the students over the last couple of years in terms of yeah yeah yeah. I think and I think it's hard because I think like some of it is um, I don't necessarily think it's the academic preparation because I think the academic preparation um, with the curriculum probably is is similar. If not, I think um, you know I think the students, especially coming into UFD, like you know they they know their stuff academically for the most part. Um, I think one of our challenges for residents is that we have 50% international. So we're also dealing with students who come from all over the world from a variety of different education systems that are then trying to like figure out how to make that work uh, here. So that's also a challenge, I think. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's tough. Ooh, because... Like for people that are listening, uh, Sean and I are at different campuses of U of T, and I don't really know too much about UTM, hmm. clearly by where I parked, yeah. uh, <laughs> the other side of campus. So like, what are some 
things that people don't know about UTM that, you know, they should know? Uh, we have deer, which is nice, mm -hmm. and raccoons and possums. Um, so I, I start with that because I think... Uh, it's an interesting campus because, because as, as you kind of observed walking in, it's quite naturalized still. Uh, there's a lot of green space. Um, I think it's an interesting experience. It's about 12,000-ish students, so it's a much smaller sort of uh, piece than uh, downtown is. Um, and I think that community is, is something that can be really sort of observed. Like folks who come to UTM talk about how there's a little bit more of a community feel, I think, because the class sizes are a bit smaller and yeah. um, and it's not sort of like, uh, you know, it's not the 50,000 students that exist in the downtown core campus. Yeah. Um, what I would say is it's very much like, um, I think statistically, like very much a commuter campus. Um, residentially, you know, we only represent like a fifth of the first year population. Like we have about 1,200 students in residence, give or take, um, oh. maybe 13 or 14 now. Um, but, you know, it's not like other schools that have 5,000 students and yeah. residents. Like, it's a pretty small population. Um, so, you know, that, you know, roughly, like, I guess, you know, ten and a half or 11,000 students are, like, living in the community and sort of commuting in. So mm -hmm. um, so I think that has an impact on, on the campus, sort of campus life and things like that. It's also UFT, so there's, like, a, a fairly, um, you know, there's a, a piece around it. I think a reputation for it being quite studious, which I don't think is wrong yeah. and quite academically focused. Yeah, um, I think also, uh, you know, our, our population, I think, um, I'm not sure what the, what, the, what the most recent numbers are, but I know it's probably between about 20 and 25 percent are international, uh, but in residence, it's about 50. Um, so, uh, so we have a higher proportion of, of students and residents that are international, um, which makes sense with the housing, uh, with the sort of UFT housing guarantee stuff. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, and I think that there's like some interesting, you know, we have uh, a pretty strong forensic science program. We have a lot of partnerships with, um, we share it in college around some of our programs. So um, we have like a theater uh, program, theater drama studies. We have like an art and art history program um, and other sort of programs that partner with, with colleges so that folks can kind of leave with both uh, a degree and then also a diploma, uh, which I think is pretty cool. It's also like a particular common experience for like having to bus from here to Sheridan as an example yeah. for some students. Um so I think that those are some pieces. I think we have some good, um, like, life science program. We have uh, Amy, which is our, like, um, uh, entrepreneurship and sort of, like, um, oh, it's the, like, we have sort of, like, a management sort of um, management program, commerce, pieces oh, like that. Yeah. Um, and CMS, our computer math and stats program, also is is on the, is growing, uh, and I think is growing in reputation. So uh, we have a medical uh, academy here as well, yeah. um, which, which was started a few years ago. So yeah, it's, I think I have seen the campus, I've only, you know, really been here nine years and I've seen the campus grow a lot. Um, I also know that UTM is a place where like we've had some faculty members. I was talking to one who has been here for like 25 years, like since it, since oh. it originally started. So, so that is the kind of feel like, I think for some folks, like it feels very much like, you know, it is a place where some folks can work their whole career, which is I think pretty unusual, um, outside of academia, mm -hmm. um, and even I think in some cases in academia now, like I think it's it's a small enough community, you know, uh, that that it has that kind of feel to it where it, there's a familiarity and, and pieces like that. Um, so those are some things I would say about UTM. That's nice. Yeah, it's pretty like, small. Yeah. Relatively speaking. Uh, you talked about a while ago, like, I touched upon like your multiple identities. And yeah. I, w I don't know how to craft this question, but 
I guess how are you able to navigate and own your identities in your in the work that you do, especially I guess like do you think student affairs is slowly evolving for us to kind of be able to use our identities at work, or is it there's still ways to go? It's hard to. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> um... I think I'm a person who is, uh, I'm, I would say like an eternal optimist, um, but weigh that I think with like a strong sense of critical thought, which I feel like is actually an interesting combination of my parents as I think about it. <laughs> Cause my mom, I think is, is quite optimistic, uh, and sort of like, um, positive. And my dad, I think has given me like a, a strong dose of sort of the critical thinking skills. Um, not that my mom doesn't critically think too, but just different approach. Um, cause I think for me, like, so uh, I identify as someone who's crip, I identify as someone who's queer, uh, two spirit, um, and, and indigenous. And so, um, I think in various ways, some of those identities can come into work. I yeah. think a lot of the work that I try and do is advocacy work. So, you know, I think I'm lucky to work in one of the reasons I work in academic transition, I think is my goal is to help those folks who, who may also have, um, identities like those or, or other ones, um, that marginalize them, uh, and that, um, make accessing higher education difficult. Mm. Um, I think, uh, you know, they're folks who are more likely to struggle with their transition. They're folks who are more likely to, um, to struggle with, with the general sort of like access pieces around, uh, getting supports around some of their academic skills, perhaps about, um, you know, I think those identities, particularly if you're, um, the only one, uh, that, that fulfills a certain identity as well in departments or, uh, or, you know, in your class or things like that, there's like that added pressure and labor that comes with those pieces. Um, so I think about that a lot because I think for myself, you know, I am often a person that is like the only whatever when I go into a room, um, you know, uh, and I think in particular too, like an important part of self-actualization for me is also to be own those pieces because, I recognize that having, you know, like I have a master's degree from Moise, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I have a, the privilege of having the kind of education that like, it, you know, in some cases people um, will listen to the things that I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Not always, but in some cases they'll listen to the things that I'm saying. Um, and so, you know, I look at that as having a responsibility, I think, to, to other folks who um, you know, inhabit some of those identities to be able to, to speak, to try and make these spaces a little bit more inclusive for them. I think it's really hard though. Uh, and I think there is like, um, some, one of the tensions that I often find for myself is walking between like academic spaces and community spaces. Yeah. <laughs> because it's like two, it maybe shouldn't be polar opposites, but almost some, it can be, right? They can be. And I think some of it can be because, you know, like I have friends who, we've had some like very um, significant conversations around how like there's a reason that they don't participate or work in institutions or academia because they, because it can be really harmful to people with marginalized identities. Mm. And I don't think student affairs, I think student affairs may be more attuned to that than the academic side of the house. And I think that's been a really interesting piece of learning for me yeah. as a faculty member to also to sit in both worlds to kind of say, Oh, like, other academics and, and professors like don't actually get this side of the world. Like they think of their students often, not always, but in, in a lot of ways they think of their students as like the brains that come to class and the like body that brings the brains to class yeah. as opposed to as whole humans. And I think student affairs encourages 
you to think of students as whole human beings. Mm, yeah. When okay. it's at its best, let's say. When it's at its best, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and when people are dealing with their own bias and when people are dealing with their own prejudice and when people are dealing with their own sort of like unconscious things that they're bringing to work. Um, so at its best, I think, student affairs has the opportunity to inform some of those things, which is why I actually think student affairs and academia and the sort of academic side of the house working together is so important. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also why I've been able to build some very strong relationships, I think, with folks who have in, inhabited both worlds. So some of um, the faculty members that I've connected with really well are also folks who have been in student affairs because there is a piece where you get you get it a little bit more significantly because you've, you know, because um, you know what to do when a student is, let's say, experiencing a mental health crisis. You yeah. know, like I've had students come to me as a faculty member and kind of say, like, I remember one came to me and was like, listen, like, um, you know, I, I'm basically at risk of homelessness um, because my landlord is discriminating against me because of, of various identities that I have. And I don't think I can get your paper, the paper in on time. And my response to them is, don't worry about the paper. Are you okay? When can you have it done? Like, let's, let's work on that to make sure that you're actually feeling supported. Yeah. And I don't think that was the response they were expecting. No. Because that's not the response that, that, that faculty... And I think that is the student affairs lens is, okay, this is like a whole student who is here in front of us. How do we, we serve the whole student? Because if the student isn't whole, they're not going to be able to focus on their academics, right? That's the reality. It's like, it's great ideal to think that people can put all that aside. That's... that's that sort of um, privilege though. Like if you are someone who um, doesn't have a lot of other things going on in your life and can focus on academics and just academics, that is, that is an, an inherent privilege to your identities. That yeah. is probably something potentially to do with class. That is something potentially to do with family wealth. That is something probably to do with, um, you know, um, whether you're racialized or not, whether you have other communities outside of here, uh, you know, because um, I often think about that in terms of like, you know, who are we carrying with us when we're in different academic spaces? So for myself, like I'm often feeling like I'm carrying the two-spirit community with me. I'm carrying the indigenous community. I'm I'm carrying the crypt community with me because these are not historically spaces that were welcoming for us. Right. So, um, so in a lot of ways, I think, um, you know, when it's breaking that ground, you know, if I think of it from like a crude context, like grass dancing or this idea of like laying a foundation, um, like patting the grass down, to, for people to come is kind of how I often think of my responsibility. Um, That's good. Um, which is something we talked a lot about. Um, a former supervisor and I uh, sort of did a presentation on that idea of like that metaphor of sort of this grass dance that we do. Um, and part of the responsibilities that I look in and that as, as that person who sort of scouts ahead is also recognizing that, you know, you're also then able to identify those dangers and risks for folks coming in. But those are hard conversations to have. And something that I, I find tricky is those are conversations we have anyway. So like I get emails, like I got an email today from from someone who's downtown who's mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, we have an Indigenous student who's potentially coming to UTM. You know, can you support them? Can you help them navigate? And that's like sideline work that I do all the time. Yeah. Because it's a responsibility to the community. Like I remember when I was working at the Friendship Center, um, um, I was the um, one of the co-executive directors for a while. Um and one of my um, one of my colleagues, who is one of our directors, you know, had a daughter who was going to UTM, and she was literally like, "Can you just grab a coffee with her and make sure she's doing okay? Because she's not going to talk to me about it." And yeah. I said, "Yeah, sure, for sure." Yeah. And it's like that—that's that hidden labor that, like, you don't. And that's true of every Indigenous academic. That's true of every Indigenous student affairs person. Yeah. Like when you when I talk to those folks, um, 
you know, these are things that are often talked about as like, this is the hidden, the hidden cost. Yes. And it's the stuff we're not necessarily compensated for in the same way. Invisible labor. Yeah. And it's like, and it's an interesting balance because to me, like, if I'm going to Starbucks to have a meeting with a student, like I'm on the clock, so I am being paid, but I'm doing that extra work that, you know, my colleagues are not being asked to necessarily do that same kind of work. Um, and on paper, we're sort of paid the same. So mm-hmm. what does that look like, right? So I think that those are things, I think, for me that, that come to mind when I think of, about some of those pieces and I think about creating access points with student affairs. It's also, I think, really hard because, um, you know, student affairs is still very homogenous in the sense of, like, there aren't a lot of racialized folks. There aren't a lot of Indigenous folks. Um, you know, they tend to be isolated within particular roles or departments, um, you know, that are... Um, not necessarily given the same kind of funding. Um, often the funding for, as an example, like Indigenous Student Support Services. So I was the co-chair for, uh, not last year, the year before, for NASA, which is the, um, well, I think it's called the different, but it's basically like the Indigenous Student Services Assembly, okay. who is representing like all of the Indigenous Student Service folks across Canada. Um, and so I was one of their co-chairs and it, again, we did a lot of like discussions and articles and stuff around this idea that, you know, a lot of those um, units are funded by government, right? So a lot of those units are not necessarily core funded by the institution, they're funded by grants. And so when those grants go away or the, when the government changes or the federal government cuts funding, you know, um, core funding is the only way that those units survive, um, like any unit on a university campus, yes. right? So. So again, it's also those priorities of like, so what, what then happens? And then for folks who work outside of those Indigenous student service areas, um, you know, and this was um, something that, um, you know, when I'm looking at like as an example, PhD work or future work, like something I, I've talked about looking at for a number of years is that experience of faculty, of staff, staff in particular, like um, support staff, because um, I think there is some, some research on faculty and students. Um, but this idea of look, looking at the experience of support staff who work in Indigenous student service areas and then those who don't work in Indigenous student services to kind of see from um, a qualitative perspective what is the difference. Ooh. And particularly, I think, like, um, feelings uh, towards the institution. I think it's important that we are, like, as scholars, like, turning the lens back on the institution uh, that has studied our people for so many years and, you know, anthropologists and like... And has, continues to do so. Yeah, and it has con- and continues to do so in ways that are not following good research methodologies and practices, um, which we know there's a ton of it, really good Indigenous writing on, like, you know, um, by like Sean Wilson and um, Linda Twy-Smith and others who talk about these ideas of having decolonized methodologies. Like, the, the information's out there, but whether folks are engaging with it or not. So to me, it's always interesting to turn the lens back on the institution to kind of say, well what is the experience of your Indigenous staff, people working here? Um, and I think there's also, going back to an earlier point, um, with community stuff, like there is, I think, very much uh, sometimes a bit of like a, a delicate balance between, you know, questions around whether we should be engaging with the with institutions that are harmful to us in the first place. Oh, yes. Uh, one of the hard parts, I think, to me, yeah. is there is that we also know that, like, currently speaking like social determinants of health are also related to education so this is one of the hard parts whether or not that is valid or whether or not we think that that's the way that it should be it is the way that it currently is um so you know having students get through and you know get graduate degrees or get undergrad degrees like there is an advantage to that for those students Uh, and for their communities i think too because i think they can then hopefully like take some of the resources that exist within it 
these higher education spaces that have been taken out of those communities and kind of put them back in. And again, maybe that's that like optimism that I have where I'm just like trying to see the, the benefit of it. Um, but I also recognize to the sort of like other side of it, which is to say that, you know, we also should be accessing our own education systems and our own language pieces, and we shouldn't be relying on institutions to do those. And the partnerships that we have with institutions should be ethical uh, and should be the institutions like doing their best to not cause harm mm -hmm. because of the harms that they've enacted on us yes. and continue to, right? So that's not a past thing. Um, so that's also the thing that I struggle with is like, these institutions are things that are, you know, for me, even as, as someone who's worked in one for, you know, in different ones for over a decade, like they are sites of harm, right? And I think often it's like, it's not necessarily the kind of like overt harm always. It's yeah. the sort of like um, unacknowledged harm or it's the like when you're the only person in a room or it's like having to educate colleagues because they can't be bothered to like pick up the TRC and read it. Yeah. Like things like that, right? Like there's a lot of infra there's a lot of things that people can do to learn about marginalized identities. There are tons of brilliant scholars that are, you know, relatively speaking, paid well to, to do that work and have been compensated duly um, to do that. Um, you know, but uh, but I think the response often for student affairs folks is, well, we're really busy and you know we don't have the time to do all this. Um, to which my response is often, well, I have to understand and work within the dominant culture. In two two worlds. Right, so like you know, and based on your identity, public multiple words. Oh yeah, right? always the opposite of yeah. your yeah. And I think it's often sort of like you know, I often think about this um, as a queer person in particular, like, uh, and and as someone who is two spirit, so it, you know, identifies sort of on that sort of non-binary sort of like um, trans spectrum. You know, part of my survival techniques when I was young was like figuring out masculinity to be able to play it enough to be safe. Mm. Right, so like I joke now where I'm like sports. But I have, like, a rudimentary understanding of many sports. I don't really care too much about sports, to be honest. Like, I know... But you had to to pass. Right. And this Ooh. is... And so it's things like that. So, I mean, understanding those pieces, I've done the same with institutions here. Like, I, I... You know, and I was fortunate, I think, with the indigeneity piece that my dad is white. So, like, I have a pretty good model for what whiteness looks like in yeah. some ways. Uh, and so I can, like, do a good impression of it when I need to. Um, but I think it's also those pieces around to be fully self-actualized beings. We also have to be able to, like, fully uh, recognize and deal with the full extent of our being. Uh, and so that's the other thing that I tried to do is to not, you know, it was like a, I was doing a class last night. Um, someone asked me to come in and, and do, like, a like a lecture or sort of whatever at Humber um, for a social service worker class. And, you know, someone was asking about, this, this notion of like, for lack of a better term, of, of like full bloods and mixed bloods within indigenous communities. Mm. And I was pushing back on that notion to kind of be like, well, like un, when you look at it that way, like that's a very colonial constructive to understand identity is that you can parse it out and be a piece of something and a piece of something else and a piece of something else. You know, um, and I was trying to explain to them, you know, the notion of like in our, in, as I understand it, and have read about it in our communities, the way we understood it as an example identity is, were you living like that thing? Cause that's the thing that you are. So in the case of like, you know, Métis or Cree people, um, you know, before the Indian act and before those things that like actually like legislated us and colonized us to put us in those places, you know, it, the question wasn't what percentage of whatever are you? The question is, what are you living like? Are you living like a white person or are you living like an indigenous person mm -hmm. or, you know, and then, are you living connected to your kin? Are you living connected to the land? Are you still hunting and trapping and doing those things? Are you, you know, those, those sorts of markers. Uh, and I don't think that that's un, I don't think that's unreasonable now. Like, are you living with those values? Are you living in ways that support our ancestors and, and try and do good to the earth? 
you know, those are the kinds of things that I think about a lot. Um, but are also like very deep philosophical things to be trying to bring in, in, into institutional settings um, that like to simplify complexity because um, it's easy and you can deal with it, right? Um, and I think that's some of my pushback is like with with marginalized identities and with multiple identities and intersectionality, the, the brilliance of it is it creates a lot of, to me, it creates a lot of opportunities for complexity and it creates a lot of opportunities for nuance and sitting with things and things not being easy. Um, and I, I often feel like pushing back on, on those things like a lot where, you know, as an example, you know, whiteness and uh, particularly I would say internalized ableism go hand in hand, right? Yeah. So so as an example, I don't know if, if this is your experience um, as well, but I know like as an example, like there's a, a big push for like sort of like um, like in student affairs here even, like that the kind of like activities that we do as a department are very athletic activities. So like we'll go see a, a game because that's because co- collegiality in that way uh, and collegiality in university is like athletics. Yeah. And that, you know, like, Athletics is the way that we understand athletics is very much still related to whiteness, mm-hmm. um, particularly around like because the types of folks who often are playing in those athletics yeah. are not white. And this is an opportunity for them in a lot of cases to like, you know, like this is a way that they're maybe, um, you know, accessing higher education and pieces like that. Oh, yeah, that's true. Right. And then, you know, depending, depending on if they end up in professional sports or things like that, because this is often a stepping stone there, like that that's a way of creating opportunity. Um, but then again, like who is profiting from those things? It's not necessarily those folks, right? Because, you know, ath- athletics in a lot of cases is something that um, even for able folks, like slowly destroys your body because <laughs> yeah. it's a lot of, it's a lot of wear and tear on it. Right. So I think that about that a lot in the context of like, even like the kinds of activities that we do, like, are we like, you know, bonding by doing like a yoga session, which is appropriative in and of itself, or are we bonding and doing like something that's like physical? And that's great if that's the thing you're into. But for someone like myself who manages like chronic pain and illness, like it's kind of like that depends on the day. And also like doing athletic pursuits in public for me, like is, is not necessarily how I would choose to spend my time because it's, it's also like there's a cost to it. So if I choose to do those things, you know, there may be a, a cost in terms of um, doing those things in public, but in addition, in sort of like actual wear and tear on my body, and yeah. sort of those pieces. So it's just it's hard to push back on some of those notions because again, like our institutions were very much designed with a particular like client in Person, mind. Yeah, um, that persists, right? Those are still the folks who are running most of our institutions. Those are still the folks who are you know make up the most senior faculty and most senior administrative positions. So um, you know, I think that those are and differs at different institutions, but I think often is like, and you know, inadvertently perhaps uh, continue to act as gatekeepers, I think, for more marginalized folks who are accessing these, these locations. So I often think about that in terms of like, with my particular identities, like I am not someone who is supposed to survive, let alone end up in post-secondary, let alone end up with a master's, let alone end up in an institution to be able to create space for people, right? So that's often what I look at as my responsibility for some of those things. And how do you, like, if you're able to practice self-care, especially to navigate all those identities and try to make sure you advocate and create space for students that might uh, resonate with your experience and be drawn to you or rely on you to create space for them on campus, like, how does that, what does that even look like to take care, to make sure that you're okay? Yeah. I think um, it's a great question. I think... <clears throat> I think at various times, 
Um, I think at various times that's more difficult than others. Um, I think, you know, uh, I, I, for one, am not a person who's got that 100% right. Uh, I think uh, some years are harder than others. I think, I think what I have, like, I think my transition, probably as I've gotten into my 30s a little bit, is to me, and probably like longer in my career, is pieces around accepting that there's things that like I just can't control. Mm. And accepting that there's like, like I am not myself as, a, as one human going to be able to create institutional change. It's not going to happen. I'd love it. I'd love for that not to be the case. But I mean, that is just not in the cards, that's right? That's real truth. That's, yeah, um, that's... One person cannot create that change. Yeah. Um, something I, I, I think about often, my dad always talked about... Um, was this idea though that you also can't necessarily create change from the outside so you know we as communities can put a lot of pressure on post-secondary institutions um, to to create change but I think it can be easily dismissed because institutions can push back and see like well you don't know our context therefore what you're telling us actually doesn't doesn't hold weight and so I don't I don't agree with that but I think it is a it is a um, defense that often gets used by post-secondary education, I think, and institutions, um, and a way that they further marginalize folks and dismiss community. Because, I mean, there's lots of examples in institutions where communities come and said, you're actually harming us here and what you're doing isn't right. And institutions say, well, you don't understand. We're just doing research, right? So I think for me, being internal to those things and learning that language, you can push back a little bit differently from the inside. But I've always joked, um, and I I think the other side of it is humor, is a big part of my survival mechanisms. I think being around other Indigenous folks when I can, other marginalized folks when I can, um, I think I feel very fortunate to work with the student leaders that I do. Um, a lot of the student leader uh, leaders that have been folks who have worked with me directly are marginalized folks, and so, again, creating opportunity for them and helping their success, I think, gives me a lot of fulfillment. Um, but I often think about my role as, like, sometimes, particularly around the Indigenous side of things, as, like, you know, I, I am a person because of my coding who comes across potentially as cis, who comes across as able-bodied, who comes across as white, uh, who isn't any of those things, who comes across, you know, uh, in some ways, I guess, probably is straight. Um, I'm not any of those things, mm-hmm. but I come across as those things. So I'm going to use that privilege whenever I can. And I use the joke of it's like, they're not going to necessarily let us in the front door. Yeah. <laughs> but God, but God damn it! I'm gonna open the windows. I'm gonna open the back door, and I'm gonna get as many people in when they're not looking as I possibly can. Yeah. Because I have this image of them coming back into the house, like someone knocking at the front door and distracting them, and then we get everyone in. Yeah. And they turn around and it's just full, and they're like, "Oh crap!" <laughs> <laughs> now I'm the marginalized person, yeah. right? And I mean, like in some ways, my vision I think would be that that's what our higher education institutions look like, is that they are reflective of the population of this place that is currently called Canada, um, you know, that it's reflective of the newcomers who have come here, who, as they learn about their responsibilities and as they learn about the history here, are holding the government uh, and, and holding people who hold these institutions to account. And that's a lot of the work that I do here is a lot of international students have never heard of Indigenous people. Oh, yeah. So when we can do that education, their first response generally, in my, and I see this as a professor a lot when I teach the intro course, mm-hmm. is anger and frustration and shame and rage towards the Canadian government yeah. and people in power because because the people in power are not acknowledging the harms that they're still causing. And so I have a lot of hope that as newcomers and folks come here that they can hold that complexity and hold that rage and hold, um, you know, 
governments accountable because they because they do have power, right? And I think particularly as they're folks who, when we do these things, and you know, if they choose to become citizens here, if they choose to become uh, in those pieces, and I often think about the responsibility as treaty people, like when new people come here, there are there there brought into something that has already existed for yeah. hundreds and thousands of years, right? Like we've been making treaties with other nations and with each other um, for thousands of years, you know, in this area. Like I was just reading um, today, um, it's a really great book by Doug Williams, who is uh, someone who knows Mark and Wendy Phillips. Um, and Doug is uh, someone who used to sometimes do some of the trip stuff with us, but is one of the, the holders of the, the teaching rocks up in Peterborough. Uh, the petroglyphs and so oh. he wrote this really good book and he talks about the mississauga people um, not the mississaugas of the credit that's a different group but he talks about the mississauga people in general and how up around the northern great lakes were their ter- were their territories for time immemorial and he talks about the timeline from their perspective of when different groups kind of came up and that they were given space now obviously different groups are going to maybe contest that and that's okay for different groups to have different understandings of those things but what I think about that is, you know, I often um, introduce myself as someone who is an unintended guest on this territory. Um, wow. Because often we get the thing of uninvited, but I'm unintended. So, like, I don't know that my people wanted to leave Ireland, but I think it was either starve or go. Ooh, this is... This, I like where you're going with this because I feel like um, <clears throat> when, um, the course I just took recently at OISE was a lot of dialogue regarding how like immigrants, like what is their role as treaty people because, um, or refugees, or people that are like, they didn't know, they just came here, and 100%. they, like, like you walk, they walked into a treaty, and they're like, we didn't know that this is happening, and unintended guests. And so, and, and that's the way that I've been thinking about it, because, you know, like, and, and my other side of my family is from, like, is Soto, so from, like, originally from, like, Sault Ste. Marie, uh, and, are, and are also Anishinaabe people, and then also Cree people, who you know, are from sort of Saskatchewan and other places, um, you know, that family ended up in Southern Ontario because of racism. So they left because they were being discriminated against. And this was, and they went to an urban setting where they were able to, to, to make a life for themselves in different ways. So again, would they have left their homelands if they were able to make a living and, and not have to deal with toxic, horrible racism? Maybe, maybe not. I'd like to think probably not. Um, obviously it's more complicated than that, but I mean, there's pieces around that. So, you know, so when you're an an unintended guest, the way that I often frame that then is, so if I'm an unintended guest here and the, the Mississauga, uh, are, are the the folks who are here, you know, that, that Huron, uh, Wendat, Patoon, Tobacco people have been here, that Haudenosaunee people have been here. If I'm an unintended guest who can learn the histories of this place and can engage with what it means to be a guest on this territory as someone outside of my homelands, my, my ancestral homelands, then anyone coming here can too. Yeah. And that's the way that I try and bring people into it because because as an Indigenous person, my responsibilities look different, but I think are about reminding people that doesn't matter where we travel, we're still a guest. Like I was born on this territory. But, you know, my homelands are across the water and my homelands are Saskatchewan and my homelands are up around the, the top of the Great Lakes. Like, this is where my people have been since time immemorial, mm-hmm. since as long as we can remember. Um, and so, you know, in, in those ways, um, in coming here, like, there is an obligation and a responsibility to learn what it means to be a good guest. Yeah. Because my responsibilities aren't host responsibilities here. If we're talking about being on our homelands... 
and understanding the impact of colonization on those things and understanding what it means to be a host in those territories and what it means for those to be our homelands, that's a totally different conversation than I'm here for. But again, if I was having this conversation as someone who like grew up on my ancestral homelands in Saskatchewan, I would be having it as a different conversation. Yeah. So, or as someone who grew up in Ireland, like, um, I would be having it as a different conversation because those are, you know, but we ended up here again, um, really like a, as refugees in lots of different ways. Right. And that's not an uncommon story amongst indigenous people is the other thing that we don't talk about is colonization has displaced us many times. Oh, yeah. So even the Mississaugas is an example, like there's a, Doug tells a really good story of how, you know, the Mississaugas originally left here for like 20 years to avoid disease and war. And then came back down and there were people in the territory. You know, we know like the Botawatomi people are, were from maybe a little fur- further south. And because of what happened with the War of 1812, took refuge on different reserves here. Like, it's not uncommon for our people to be refugees, even with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, as colonization has happened, yeah. as diseases happened, as those things have happened, Boring. right? So, so to me, again, we have a responsibility. So if, if we, So if I think about myself in that context, as someone who comes from... A history of refugees and as someone who uh you know whose family in that way like the irish side of things has been able to be indoctrinated into whiteness in a couple generations because like it's also the reality of like that wasn't always the case uh you know um there was um you know in various parts of like montreal and various parts of other places like the irish were discriminated against as an as a refugee group yeah. um and you know it's also that our first language was in english so my dad t- talks about how his family um, the first language, uh, of his family members, like some of his family members, I think it's maybe his grandmother was Irish and then she didn't pass it down to her kids, uh, which is a very similar story to the indigenous indigenous folks. And, and for my indigenous relatives, it's literally, it's, it's really interesting because it's the same story on both sides. It's just different language. Um, but again, you know, you see in Ireland, there's been a resurgence of the Irish language there. All of their road signs are in Irish. Like it's a national language. Now they've put a lot of money into it because again, they're resisting colonization. Mm. So I think again, that's where, um, I, I feel like from both sides, I have an interesting understanding of colonization. And then North America is a really interesting thing because North America, um, you know, structurally and particularly like, I would almost say like the Irish Canadian experience versus the Irish American experience and how those are actually even different histories in and of themselves because of where they settled. So like my dad being in Montreal is an Anglo person, um, but also is like a Catholic person is very different than Irish Catholics who ended up in like Boston or New York or yeah. Chicago, you know, where they essentially all created like tiny little like enclaves and neighborhoods that have slowly over time grown from being folks who were, um, you know, uh, discriminated against to people who, you know, um, have like had a president yes right and it's yes. different here like obviously like i think um <laughs> there's also been like folks here but there's like you know those are interesting history to think about what it means to be a refugee and what it means to to for folks who came here and then you know really like had a better life here but at the expense of you know other people so within my own family it's like a interesting tension because it's you have both people who have very much profited from the like displacement and uh stealing of indigenous lands uh even while uh, they are related to those people who like have done that work <laughs> inadvertently perhaps, right, yeah. but like also overtly. Right. So I think that's the other thing. Cause like, again, I think as people, and some of it's also related to class. So as like, as Irish folks have moved out of being sort of like poor working class people yeah. have been able to access things like education, have been able to access sort of like, you know, um, more wealth, 
uh, wealth and, and wealth in a way that is sort of like multi-generationally spanning because that's I think often one of the ways that is important to define it um, you know uh, that changes the relationship that you have um, with that and I think it's interesting to see that amongst other sort of like um, groups who have immigrated here as well other nations and other folks the other thing I was thinking about too and I talked about yesterday uh, just as a sidebar I think was this fo- this notion of decolonizing the notion of how we understand those because a different nation is a different nation. So I often use the example of when we're talking about whether someone's Irish or whether someone's Mohawk yeah. and Anishinaabe, it's all different nations. Yeah, nation to right? nation. So it's a nation to nation relationship, you know, um, pre-existed what we understand as the modern state. And it's also interesting, I think, for me, because yeah. I come from nations that, um, you know, in both cases, like they can, like like Canada was was only a nation in the late 1800s it's not that old yeah and then Ireland has only been a nation since like the 19 since like 19 whatever 1916 1918 or whatever since the Irish Free State was formed um and they still have like a colonial hat that sits on top of it right so like I'm going to Ireland next week which is probably what's on my mind as a as a trip and we're going into the north which I've never been but it's like a weird thing because it's still it's it's uh part of Great Britain yeah, you're right? right, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's still, like, much, I think, to, much contentiously, I think. Because, again, it's like an, it's an island that was taken from Irish people. Yeah. Uh, language was criminalized. Uh, culture was criminalized. Again, all of this is very familiar for Indigenous folks. Yes. And is also, I think, to me, and I've had po- folks come up to me, like, when I, when I won the Idol Award, I had, like, an Irish person come to me afterwards. Really? And say thank you and was like, I appreciate it. Because the other thing was, I think about this a lot when it comes to privilege is... Because we know better. So, like, what bothers me around privilege is when people end up with whiteness or end up with privilege and they don't look... It's kind of like um, when someone has been oppressed, you would hope that they would maybe remember that oppression and not turn that back on other people. But we know as an example that Irish people have been, like, historically very anti-black. Yeah. <laughs> have been very, like, anti-Indigenous, right? But that's also, like, there's a history there around... Um, around particularly in the states i think especially yeah. there's a history there around how those two groups were pitted against each other um i was thinking that was like probably survival and just like what, colonization and, and specifically i think in the states like what my understanding of it it was it was specifically that if particularly in the south uh because irish immigrants were brought into a lot of the labor if the folks in the south if irish and black folks in the south had bonded had bonded together and created uh, like uh, a relationship yeah. they would have been able to overthrow the like relatively speaking small amount of white slave owners <laughs> so there's like a vested interest in keeping those two groups yeah. apart and it's still this to, the, to this day true thinking, yeah. right? because we also know I was just reading about in Chicago yesterday or the day before and it was talking about this idea that like again like there's a lot of racial tension within these different communities right um, and I think part of it is too again like that uh that has been for a purpose, right? Like, I know that was one of the big things, like, in my family that my dad talks about around, um, you know, and, and my mom to an extent, too. Because um, my mom, my mom's family, it's kind of weird. Like, all of the Indigenous women have married Irish men. It's very really? strange. Yeah. I don't know why, but it's been, like, on both sides, on like, both both sides of my mom, it's all, like, Irish men with Indigenous women going back um and i think part of it is also scottish too because i because i think but again you think about it this way i think is my thought sidebar my thought i think is that it goes back to our clan systems because scottish people have clans irish people have clans yeah our last names are our clans 
So like my clan, one of my clans, or like my the, the last names that we have, our last names are not, um, like in England, as I understand it, for British people, it was often your profession. Yeah. With Irish and Scottish people, with Gaelic people, um, it was where you came from. It was your family. It was your land. So like, so the last names of my family, so like uh, Kinsella, that's not actually how it's said. Uh, that's the anglicization of it. It's what? It's uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Kinsella is how you actually say it. And it's actually like with a bunch of C's and N's and like it's a Gaelic, it's okay. a Gaelic term. And it comes from the southeastern part of Ireland. Uh, and there's a particular area that was like a significant chunk of it that was called High Kinsella. And that was where our people came from. So we know that the city we came from, we know exactly where it came from in like 1100 or something like that. Which is again, clan system stuff, right? And then, you know, like others, like um, my other family, like Carmody, Shannon, like those are all um, talking about the different like areas, like there's rivers and different landmarks that you would use to, to mark mm -hmm. where people were from. Right. So I, I, I think postulating that some of that may have been an understanding, at least between those two pieces where you have some understanding of like, um, people who are from like a clan, a clan culture or kinship networks. Right. Cause also, yeah. um, you know, had pretty extensive kinship networks. I would say before, um, like, I think that's an interesting question now. Cause I think again, uh, class has a lot to do with that so as people like um, become um, upwardly mobile in class there's that uh, adoption of the nuclear family which I see in my family like my dad's generation you know all, all five kids or six kids all grew up in like one house and then since you know like each of them had like maybe two to four kids and like it's a lot yeah. smaller so like those pieces um, so it's an interesting thing because I think I think about how do these histories and and what it means to be a refugee of different cultures and also to examine these things. So like, what does it mean to have these different cultural contexts? Because again, when we think of like Canada, it's this giant homogen homogenous thing that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like when someone's like, what is a Canadian? Yeah. You know, like people have these like stereotypical images. The cultural museum. Yeah. And also like stereotypical images of things that were stolen from us in the first place. Yeah. Right, so like maple syrup, okay, well, we, we taught you that. Uh, lumberjacks, yeah, stop cutting down lacrosse. our trees. Lacrosse, which again, we gave, you know, <laughs> yeah. like, like it's like the, the gifts that the indigenous people gave the settlers yeah. uh, that have that been appropriated and then become part of this, like, natural, you know, national identity. Um, and then you're not part of that identity. No. <laughs> no. Just take your stuff without it. You're not Canadian. Mm -mm. And like, and also like on the other side, didn't want to be right. That was yeah. the other thing is like, we, we didn't, that's part of the treaty and part of the Indian act stuff is we didn't want to be Canadian. Yes. We were happy being, you know, Nahia, Nathia, yeah. um, you know, we were happy being Anishinaabe. Like we didn't ask for those things, but we also weren't given much of a choice. Um, you know, and I, so I think it's interesting and I think that's also true of other, um, you know, that's why often when I teach, I, I try and do the sort of like, as I was taught, like the circles where we introduce ourselves. Cause it's really interesting to hear the different contexts and nations that people come from. Um, cause again, like, um, you know, because, it, cause people who have been marginalized often identify like, you know, for the most part, like Irish people still very much identify as Irish. Yeah. You know, even if our families have been here, you know, like my family, um, on both sides, you know, in some cases have been here since like the late 1800s. But, you know, it's still very much like you identify as that particular culture because it was insular, right? Like my dad's generation in his family was the first generation to marry out. Everyone else married internal into the, into the little communities because that was a safety thing, right? Um, and also a cultural thing and, and pieces around that. Yeah. So, you know, so I think that there's lots of, lots of 
um, I think lessons to be learned from looking at those things, but then also to understand again, like what are our responsibilities as folks who are here now? So like, you know, in, in a lot of ways, like, um, particularly with like, with famine folks, like we can't go back because we're not, we're not Irish in the way that Irish understands Irish anymore. Yeah. We've been gone too long. Right. So now we're a part of that diaspora. So then what does it mean then to be here, but also inhabiting those different identities and understanding those responsibilities and, and those sorts of things, um, in a way that maybe like my ancestor didn't necessarily understand, uh, cause they were like, literally like it was starve or get in a boat yeah. <laughs> and hope you survive the crossing. And containment. I can't imagine that, like, us, like, this generation having to make those no. sacrifices yeah. to pick up and go. What it, and I think for me what's really, really interesting um, that I try and sit with a lot of nuance is, because uh, I said, like, so my, you know, like, I come from a family of vets and I come from, like, two out of those three folks who served in the military are Indigenous, of Indigenous ancestry. Mm-hmm. So they're serving a country that stripped their family and their ancestors of their rights because it was at that time, I mean, some of it, that's very complex. Like, um, you know, my dad talks about how for his family, like some of it was uh, decisions around like, um, which is not an uncommon sort of Irish story around like um, poverty or like, and like, uh, because my grandfather for a while was like, uh, as I understand it, was essentially on the streets. Okay. And he was given, him and his brother were given the option of like, Military or, or jail. Oh. <laughs> so they chose military. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so they ended up in the Navy. Um, you know, but it's, again, this, like, so it's an interesting sort of piece around, like, what, what does that mean in those contexts in terms of, like, when we talk about even consent and freedom of choice and things like that, like, it's a very different scenario when it's, like, coercive, when it's coerced. Yeah. And also, again, that, like, Indigenous folks disproportionately have served in military, serving Canada in, in, all, in all wars. All wars. Uh, disproportionately high to population. Uh, which again is like I think a cultural piece, but is also related to some of those pieces around, you know, um, the complexity of some of that stuff. So I think about that a lot in terms of like what does it mean to come from families that carry, and I'm starting to have those conversations with my with my family yeah. like slowly around like, hey, we've been traumatized for a couple generations about a bunch of stuff. I think we need to maybe talk about that <laughs> and work through some of those things wow. for self actualization and like understanding why we believe some of the things the way that we have and why we we've engaged in behaviors that are like harmful or, um, you know, uh, uh, those sorts of pieces. So that's the other thing. That's some powerful family tree stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to know where you came from Yeah. to kind of know, um, I think to know where, what your responsibilities are, to be honest, is how I would phrase it to understand, um, you know, and it's, it's also interesting to me, around understanding I think again um why people have ended up in the places that they've ended up and what then what responsibility do we then owe the people who were here are here have existed here etc and to each other too because it's also that piece like the treaty stuff is around like how are we treating each other um and you know again if we look at things as nation-to-nation relationships then what do what are our responsibilities as folks who are from different nations who are now approaching these nations with the idea of like um, staying and this idea of like contributing to, to, to their world and this world. How's your faculty experience? Like, how's it been for you to be teaching? I think it's, um, it's, it's, I think really given me a very different perspective. Um, I think it's been very helpful to understand how faculty think, um, 
I think it's uh, it's a just a very different uh, the kind of flexibility you have as a faculty member is very different. Oh. Um, the kind of accountability you have as a faculty member is very different. Um, you know, part of that is I'm very very fortunate to work at Centennial with the folks that I work with yeah. who give me a lot of laterality. So, you know, I've I've done some writing with uh, Stephanie Waterman on what the teaching pedagogy I use is, and it's very much an Indigenous one. And I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to like be able to restructure how we do classrooms and to be able to, um, you know, have people back me up when I'm when folks are pushing back on a on a kind of way of learning that maybe they're not familiar with. Um, so I think that I'm very grateful for that. It's hard. Like I think that there's there's pieces around, um, again, like. It's a good lesson, I think, in, in recognizing the limitations on what we can, like, do for other people and what the goal of, like, an importance of self-learning and self-knowledge is. Because uh, I think a lot of faculty members maybe are trying to get their students to do things. And I think what I've, what I've learned and learned to accept, and I think, and this is also probably part of student affairs, is, like, you can't do that. People are going to come to class or they're not going to come to class. All you can do is set up what the parameters and expectations yeah. for success are, and then they kind of have to own it. Uh, and that's not something we have a lot of control over. Um, but I think as faculty members, we have to kind of accept that. So I think it's been interesting to be able to uh, to think about those things in, in application to um, what I've also learned in student affairs. Um, I, th I think it would benefit more student affairs members mm. to teach. I think it would give student affairs members a much deeper appreciation for just how difficult the faculty job actually okay. is. Um, uh, and then also I think um, gives you a language to understand how concerns work differently. Because okay. really like the other thing is with faculty members, you know, um, like is they don't necessarily get the opportunity. You don't get the, necess the opportunity necessarily to build the kind of relationships in the same way because you're only seeing someone for three hours a week. That's true, yeah. Right? So, like, with student affairs, like, we often, like, you know, I think with our student staff members as an example, like, we build these, we build long-term relationships because we're seeing people maybe, you know, like, over the course of an entire year. You know, almost for, every day sometimes. Almost every yeah. day sometimes, or for hours a day, or, like, you know, they're coming to events, or, like, those sorts of things. Whereas, um, you know, uh, you're only really seeing your students in a very specific context for, you know, if, if it's a three-hour class even, for three hours a week. Um, and that's if they're that's if they're regularly coming. Yeah, that too. Right, because yeah. you can't make students come. So I think that's the other, that's the big piece for me that's been an acceptance piece, is I've just learned to kind of be like, well, you know, and I think particularly because I don't teach the kind of courses that um, you that you just post slide decks about. So, like, if you don't come to class, I can't really fill you in on what you missed. Yeah. So, um, so it's been an interesting transition that way. I really like it. I think it's uh, it's an interesting composition of, of I think the worlds that that I that I come from and, and allows me to maybe um, utilize probably a different skill set and a different part of my brain. It's also a lot in some ways for me with my teaching style less structured. So I, I'm allowed to kind of like, I find with student affairs, like there's a particular structure that's intended and required. And even when we're facilitating like a training thing, like there's certain, there's certain key things that you have to hit in an hour training session yeah. to make sure that people can do their job appropriately. Yeah. Whereas I think within teaching, 
um, you know, you have an entire semester. So if you don't quite hit the point that you wanted to hit one week, you can revisit it and hit it the next week. Mm. And you have a lot more flexibility to kind of like scaffold learning and, and I would say like build in different nice. systems to get to a goal. Yeah. Um, which I think we do with, with other folks too, but we just have to do it more subtly, I think, and student affairs. Yeah. Um, but I think I like, I like that part of it where it feels like it's structured, but in like a, a more like holistic longer term way versus yeah. like, what do I need? a person to get from this particular training session or from this particular yeah. one-on-one or from this particular interaction. Um, whereas I think it's more, what do I need these students to learn over the course of the semester? What do I need these students to know by the time they finish, you know, for us, the three courses in their stackable credential, mm-hmm. what am I building into to make sure they have those skills? Okay. So it's like a different, different approach, but it's still all about, to me, student learning, just different types. Nice. Okay. It's rapid fire question time. All right. No pressure. Uh, I think you mentioned this, this before, but what was the last book you read? Uh, oh. So I'm a person who constantly reads four books at a time. <clears throat> so what ones have I been reading? The one that I think probably has stuck with me the most is one that I read last year. And it's by Joshua Whitehead and it's the book Johnny, Johnny Appleseed. And it's excellent. Um, so I would highly recommend that one. Uh, and and uh, Josh uh, is um, a two-spirit person from, I believe, Peguis First Nation, uh, who um, uh, has got a lot of press. And this particular book was like uh, just a stunning debut novel mm-hmm. um, and is like starting to win awards. The other one I would say too uh, that made my sister cry and like made her literally, because my sister lives in Hong Kong, uh, literally text me and be like, why did you leave this book here for me? Because she was sobbing so much, uh, was the was the Marrow Thieves uh, by Sherry Dimelain. And so I would also recommend that one. That one's like a young adult one, so it's okay. a bit of an easier read. Um, but it's also it's also quite stunning. Um, so those are two that I would... Th- those ones have stuck with me, I would say. Uh, and then I'm just constantly reading as many books as I possibly can at once. That's amazing. Uh, last Netflix binge? Is it Netflix? Uh, oh, what was the last one? Right now I've been watching uh, Remastered and it's different stories on musicians. So I watched one today on Robert Johnson, which was really good. Uh, and Robert Johnson was like a blues, a Delta Mississippi blues um, guitar player yeah. who is uh, who died when he was 27 years old and had a rumor that uh, had a deal with the devil at a crossroads because he disappeared for a year, wasn't a very good guitar player, and then came back and played the blues in a way that no one else has played before or since. And literally is the reason that the blues exists the way it does. So this this particular, um, it's like a 45-minute whatever um, documentary, has like Keith Richards and like has all of these different like um, sort of like folks who um, all take uh, um, their sort of cue from Muddy Waters and yeah. Muddy Waters was directly influenced from Robert Johnson. Ooh. And so, and so I was at home cause this is what I do, like trying to play some of the stuff that he plays. And what's really interesting is, is he used a differently tuned guitar. So there was like that kind of joke that the, that the devil like tapped a couple of his strings and tuned them differently. And then he came back with a completely different playing style than other people had had. So I like stuff like that. I like documentaries. Um, the other one was the new one with Netflix and David Attenborough, but it's the Netflix produced one. And I keep forgetting what it's called. It's, it's not planet earth. There's a new one that's like something earth 
And it's like, I always joke uh, that net, that the Planet Earth series is like 90% the world is amazing and fascinating and look at all these cool animals. Uh, and then 10% we're, we're like, we're fucking it up. <laughs> and then this is more like 70 to 80% we're fucking it up. And like 10 to 20%. Look how magical and amazing the things we're screwing up are. Okay. So I would say that's a good one from like more of an environmental perspective because uh, I think Netflix let him be much more darker than the, the BBC, which is much more like, this is amazing yeah. and wonderful and the natural world. Yeah. yeah, this is like, look at that hummingbird. This is like, look at that hummingbird that is now covered in oil because humans are horrible. Uh, so it's, there's like a sad one about walruses and polar bears. So it's like, it's very, very good. Um, but it's also very sad. So like, definitely if you're going to watch that one, bring a tissue box. Um, let's see another one. Uh, any podcasts that you listen to? Yeah, there's a really, really good one. Um, uh, I'm going to out myself a little bit here, uh, around, uh, more than I have, around, um, so All My Relations, which is, uh, Adrian Keene, and I am actually going to look up the other person's name because I can never remember it off the top of my head. Uh, but it's, uh, it's a podcast that... Uh, is an indigenous um, content-themed one. There's an excellent um, one version of it that um, talks about um, non-monogamy in particular. And it is... Uh, so the, the podcast, the different ones that they have, they have one on food sovereignty, um, they have one on indigenous feminisms... Uh, Native mascots, um, and they have one on that is really good. Uh, that was my probably my favorite one that I've read in the last while. Uh, Matika Wilbur is the other uh, who's the, who's uh, the other person um, uh, who does it. Uh, and Kim Tover was talking about um, uh, relationality, non-monogamy, because uh, I identify as non-monogamous, and uh, also um, talking about. The, the sort of like interesting binary that we create between single and uh, and shacked up in in, in in sort of in Indian country where we talk about as like someone who is like taken yeah and she was like basically pushing back and kind of saying like listen like um, and I'm paraphrasing but basically like I'm in relationship with everything all the time so how can I be perceived as single so if I'm in a relationship with the world around me and I'm in relationship with like all other people in some form or another, or like other people, and I'm in, in constant relation and kinship with those things around me, how do I, like this idea of a romantic relationship being the most important thing in my life is a very colonial one. And so she also pushes back and talks about the idea of compulsory monogamy as being part of uh, settler colonialism. And this, and which is true, like you see that in our communities that compulsory monogamy came in with the church and basically with people being like, you do not count as married unless it's a church wedding yeah. and you do not count as people unless you're married uh, because the person who counts in that uh, is what we perceive to be the sort of like male person yeah. um, because of property and stuff like that, right? So uh, so she does an, an, just an absolutely brilliant job at sort of taking that down um, and she's got a good blog called The um, Critical Polyamorist that's also very good um, but that was just like, it was one of those podcasts that I like was was what gave me language for things I've been thinking about for a long time and trying to like intellectualize and Whoa. it was right there. So I would that was one the whole the all of those podcasts are good but um uh but Kim is also just brilliant. So like anytime oh, I can prop boy. Kim um who 
who is doing that brilliant work around particularly like relationship structures and decolonizing them uh, is something I think about a lot. So that was a really good it's podcast. Mine. Damn. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And so because this is a relay, um, who do you think we should interview next? Oh, who's a good student affairs person we can interview next? Hmm. I should have prepared more about that. Yeah, I think about to ask you properly. <laughs> oh. There's so many good people is the thing that I'm thinking about. Um, and I'm trying to think of someone that would be good that might give you like a different perspective. Hmm. I'm going to tag in, I think, my other Indigenous friend who works in housing, Savannah Sloat, who mm -hmm. works at U, downtown UFT. I would say she would be an interesting person to talk to. Uh, her, um, her experience, uh, she's a little bit, I think, um, newer to student affairs, um, relatively speaking. Uh, also uh, is someone who uh, identifies as Mohawk uh, and so has a different sort of like understanding around some of those pieces okay. uh, and, and has done some really um, important and uh, um, just amazing academic work. So she is someone that I would talk to because again, also I think is trying to straddle what those worlds look like. Yeah. Um, uh, but w would be someone that would be, I think quite interesting to talk to. So I'll take Savannah in on that one Ooh. and she can maybe thank me or curse me later. Okay. The one's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be the first. <laughs> thank you. Welcome. So good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so good. It could have gone on forever. I think that's a sign of but, a good interview. Yeah. But you yeah. got to cut it off. Yeah. At some point, you know? <laughs> so to follow Sean, um, some of his amazing thoughts and ideas, If um, I don't know if he's really active, but he is on Twitter at Tweet S-E-A-N for Sean. Which is one of the best Twitter handles. I think it's a pretty yeah. good one. Um, and mine is at Adam Kuhn, if you want to connect with me, K-U-H-N. I'm at Nads Roses. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, we encourage you to use the hashtag Relay Essay um, so that we can try to connect with you about this connected conversation. A big thank you to Adrian Ross for our theme song. And a big thank you to you, yeah. our listener, for listening. Thank you. Bye. <laughs>